Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. The cry of every believer and the promise of God to his repentant children. What portion of scripture more beautifully displays the grace and mercy of a loving God than David's plea for forgiveness in Psalm 51? Welcome to the Shalom Y'all Ministries podcast. I'm your co-host, Adam Keim, along with my good friend, Dr. Daniel McCabe. Now, Daniel, I know that this is not a sports podcast, but how about them Cowboys? Ooh, I like the way you said that. How about them Cowboys? That sounds <laughs> great. Well, it, you're right. It's it's uh, pretty early in the season um, after just one season, or excuse me, one week of this season. But yes, I'm pretty excited about my Cowboys toppling the New York Giants in week one, but it's we all know it's not how you start, it's how you finish, right? Yeah, that is true. Well, that's, a, that's a true metaphor for life as well. And uh, so we'll need to, I'll need to temper my excitement for a bit. So how are you, my friend? Oh, I'm doing pretty good this day. Now, my Vikings lost the opener, of course, but, you know, the Vikings <laughs> mantra is next year. Next year's our year. <laughs> not even Yes, like year. next year in Jerusalem. Next yes, year. next year. Although that's more realistic. Yeah, in fact, <laughs> we'll be in Jerusalem next year together on a big trip we're taking. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, but but I'm doing I'm doing well. It's Wonderful. it's starting to feel more like fall here. I have a latte in my hand that I'll be sipping from every now and then. So don't be distracted by that. It's raining outside, and I just love the setting of all of that. Wish I was there. Yes. Well, we here at Shalom y'all believe that a walk through the land deepens your walk with the Lord. And our mission is to teach and encourage those who love the Bible, the land of the Bible, and the people of the land. Now, perhaps the greatest joy of Shalom Yal Ministries is taking people to Israel to grow deeper with the Lord through that once-in-a-lifetime experience. Our next trip is scheduled for November 6th to the 17th. Go ahead and reach out for more information on this one or another trip that we can work out for you or your group. Now, Daniel, this week's episode is a bit different than normal. Instead of starting off with our usual mini topics, we've decided to lead with today's trivia question and then devote the remainder of our time to a conversational walk through Psalm 51. We hope you'll enjoy this special Bible study edition of our podcast. Daniel, what's today's trivia question? Okay, Adam, right off the bat here, let's go back to the very beginning to your namesake, Adam, and his wife, Eve. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we know that every single person on earth descended from Adam, but you know how big was Adam's immediate family? That's the kind of the mysterious question. Mm. The Census Bureau has reported that the average American family in the year 2022 had... Well, you want to guess how many children the average American family had, Adam? I know the American dream is two and a half children, but these days I'm going to guess it might be less, the fewer than that. Uh, it is. One, the, the average 1. is 1.7. 1.94 children oh. under the age of 18. And that number, okay. you're right, seems to be dropping every year. Uh, so here's our related trivia question. Again, we don't know exactly how many children were born to Adam and Eve, but how many of their children does the Bible specifically mention whether the children are named or not is the answer 
two, three, four, five, six, or seven. Did you get that, Adam? How, How many, many of their children does the Bible specifically mention whether the children are named or not? Does that make sense to you? You got it? Yeah. Okay, well, we'll think that one over and we'll have the answer for you later in the podcast. Well, Daniel, we're going to just jump on into Psalm 51. This is, I know, a dear favorite passage of Scripture to many, and it's one of my ultimate favorites as well. And I know you love it. Well, I have to admit that I I suggested it. (laughs) Yes, you did, and I was doing backflips when you did suggest it. Okay, (laughs) good. Well, Psalm 51... Um, It's important to understand the context of what's going on there. A lot of people are familiar with the verses of Psalm 51, um, but why did David even say those words in the first place? Well, if you've read through the the Samuels recently and you come to 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, that's the historical context of Psalm 51. And we won't get too much into that or else that really would take all of our time because there's a lot going on there. But in 2 Samuel 11... Um, David sends, you know, it's, it's the time of the year when Kings go out to battle. It's the spring and David sent Joab and the army to battle against the Ammonites. And, um, you know, one day David is walking along his palace and he looks down and, and he sees a woman on, on a rooftop that he is interested in. And so he, you know, invites her up and, and he lays with her, and um, it turns out that she was married. That was Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And Uriah was one of David's mighty men of valor. You know, he was pretty close to the king. See, he lived close to the king's palace. And so Bathsheba becomes pregnant. And so David, the man after God's own heart, okay, I think undoubtedly one of the most faithful stalwart men of God, in history, he is about to enter a prolonged series of sin and cover-ups that would make most people blush. And he wants to cover his tracks, so he invites Uriah back from battle to, to hopefully so that Uriah will spend a night with Bathsheba, and then nine months later, people would be none the wiser and David is off the hook, right? Hmm. Well, Uriah kind of ironically is showing himself to be a bit more righteous than David at this period. And he refuses to do that because he's concerned about his brothers in arms in battle. And so he doesn't want to take a night away from that. And so David, being the man after God's own heart, we would expect him, of course, to be, ah, you know what, Uriah, let me come clean. Here's here's what happened. Well, he doesn't do that. He tries to convince Uriah to, to go through with this. Well, he realizes that that's not going to happen. So not only did David steal Uriah's wife, he's going to murder Uriah with the sword of the Ammonite. He sends Uriah back to the battle with his own death orders in his hand to to bring to Joab. And David says to Joab, put Uriah at the front line so he dies. So nine months later, people would assume, oh, poor Uriah. He died when he and his wife were expecting a child. Well, you know, we don't know to what degree Bathsheba went along with this. Some people think that David went so far as, as to rape her. Well, that the Bible doesn't say that. But what David is doing is he is just descending into a pit of sin. And 
in 2 Samuel 12, God confronts David through Nathan. Again, we won't spend a lot of time breaking this apart, but Nathan tells David a story that David thinks is something that happens in his kingdom. This rich man takes the poor man's lamb and you know slaughters it for, for dinner. And, and so David is mad. How could somebody do something like this? As the Lord lives, this, this man should die for what he's done. And you remember what Nathan the prophet does. He looks at David and he says, you're the man. You've done this. And then through Nathan, Dave, uh, God is chiding David. I made you king over my people and I would have done so much more. God accuses David of theft and murder, stealing Uriah's wife and murdering him by the sword of the Ammonite, which is interesting because David can't just claim, oh, I didn't kill him. The Ammonites did. Ah, He fell in battle. God knew what happened. God knew what David was doing. So Daniel, Psalm 51 comes out of this. And some people might ask the question, how could David be a man after God's own heart and do these wicked things? And this wasn't just an overnight sin. This was, like I said, a series of sin and cover-ups. Yeah, in fact, James Smith, I don't know if you're familiar with James Smith, Adam, he wrote the books of history in an Old Testament survey series long ago, he put together a pretty carefully um, listed chronology of David's life. And his dating to David's life is exactly what mine would be. So that piqued my interest when I started looking at all the dates for the different events that happened in David's life. And he dates the sin of David to 982 BC, which would make David, you want to take a shot? You know how old David was, according to James E. Smith? In 982? In 982, yeah. Uh, 50. Well, close. Yeah, David is not a young man. According to Smith's chronology, David is a Mm 58-year-old man. So this is not a young man, you know, making, uh, you know, a a young man's kind of sinful choice. This is a man who clearly does so in rebellion and some of the the words in the psalm even illustrate that so i thought that was really intriguing to point that out yeah that, that's a very good point to make um and sin is sin no matter what no matter how old you are but this isn't just some <laughs> young man david um foolishly stumbling into something right. he didn't know better this is the man after god's own heart doing something like this so you know, I think of myself and, and believers should think of themselves like, well, if I am somebody after God's own heart, what I what if I sin? You know, how what if I find myself compromising my walk with the Lord and really doing are we even capable of something like this? David is a saved person in every sense of the term at this point. Now, I think what really shows David being a man after God's own heart is when confronted when really confronted by this, and Nathan is before him, Nathan, by the way, brave man that he is, taking his life into his hands, confronting the king in such a way, David could have said, how dare you talk to me, the king of Israel, is off with your head. David doesn't do that. When confronted, David responds with Psalm 51. And this is really showing a man after God's own heart. And this response of David in Psalm 51, which we're going to go through now, is the response that every believer can and should have when they too sin. Right. And, and the words, have mercy on me, those aren't prideful words. Those no. are 
those are words that suggest I am in need of divine intervention here. You know, in David's case, because his sin was done in, you know, high-handed rebellion, there, mm-hmm. there's no sin or trespass offering that he could present to God that God would accept for that. He, right. he, he knows that he's in defiance of the Lord and has repudiated God's covenant. So his sentence, according to Numbers, is death. Yes. The only reason he didn't suffer death was that God pardoned him. Mm. And the prophet Nathan brought that news, as you mentioned earlier in 2 Samuel 12, in the story that God was gracious to him, but he first had to fall upon God's just character and just simply say in the opening lines of the psalm, have mercy on me. Mm. Yes, and that understanding is so important to the psalm. David, the punishment for what he did is death under the law. And ironically, who is who has the responsibility to enforce justice in the nation yeah. of Israel? The king. It was David's responsibility to make sure that he, David, paid for his life for this, paid with his life for this, and that there is no way under the law of Moses for David to pay this off. No sacrifice he could bring. Keep that in mind as we work through the psalm. So the first two verses of Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God. And look at what David appeals to. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David knows there's no recourse under the law. All he has is to throw himself at the mercy Mm -hmm. of the court. And he has some confidence that this can be possible. That's, that's why he's doing this in the first place. And he appeals to God's love and his mercy. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And he speaks about coming from a, a needy position because you, you look down in the psalm, and maybe I'm getting ahead of you here, but there is this terminology in which he essentially admits that I... <laughs> I am a deep within bented man the, mm. when it comes to sin. Like sin is always present with me and it's it's a deep within bent to sin. And so he recognizes, hopefully as we all do, that this sinful nature that we have, it, it cannot be somehow uh, made over. It has to be completely created anew by the Lord. And that's what we see is this beautiful submission to the Lord and saying, I'm a mess, but you are righteous and just verse four. I'm, I'm, I'm going to lean upon you and I'm asking for your forgiveness as he says. So in verse 14. Yeah. And verses three and four really do show David understands the, the situation. He understands who he is in light of God's righteousness. This isn't David just, uh, you know, some, throw aside, oh, I'm sorry, forgive me. I mean, this, this is true repentance. And verse three, he says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He, he's He knows that he's a sinner. He knows that is the milieu in which he was brought forth, which he'll get to in verse five. Verse four is interesting. He says to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, 
Do you find it a bit interesting that he tells God against you only have I sinned? You know, Adam, I I read that and I've seen those words all my life. And so I was like, I'm going to go to the Hebrew. It's got to say something different, you know, because we all know that he's obviously sinned against Uriah <laughs> and Bathsheba too. Yeah. So when I go to the Hebrew and I break it down and I look at the words, you know what it means? It means against you, you only have I said <laughs> yeah. exactly what it means. <laughs> so then you have to say, okay, what, what is going on here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if we were to have a conversation with David, which can't wait, by the way, <laughs> he is my hero uh, besides the Lord himself. Um, if we were to have a conversation with David and we said, okay, come on, David, Bathsheba and Uriah, you've, you've wronged as well. I'm sure he'd say, I know. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I sinned against Uriah and to whatever degree Bathsheba as well. But what David has in mind is a really good focus here. He is saying that God is the ultimate victim, if you will, but offended party of his sin. Really all that matters ultimately is that he has sinned against God. I'm sure he wouldn't deny the the pain and you right. know that that he inflicted Uriah and Bathsheba, but he he's mostly concerned about how he has offended the Lord. You know, Joseph understood this. Remember in Genesis when Potiphar's wife is trying to seduce him and Joseph wisely fled from sin. Remember what he told Potiphar's wife? He didn't say, "How could I sin against you in such a way?" or "How could I sin against Potiphar in such a way?" Although I'm sure he would have realized that reality as well. He said, "How could I sin against God in such a way?" Even with the sin we commit, whoever we wrong in our life, ultimately God is the offended party in each and every sin that has ever been committed in the world. Think about that. And we need to bring this into our relationships today. You know, I mentioned that the David really repudiated this covenant that he was a part of with God. Well, yeah. I made a covenant with my bride, Stacy, and you with Jonna. And so when we sin against our spouses, our brides, our grooms, our you know, husbands or wives, we need to see it as, wait, this is an offense against this covenant that I entered into with that person on the day that I married. We stood before God and made this covenant to him. So my broken relationship horizontally is, is, is uh, in, in a sense, a part of that major offense of the breaking of my covenant, or at least the 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 damaging, the the loss of intimacy that comes with sin. We don't lose our relationship, so to speak, with the Lord, but we damage that intimacy, and so we need to see that in our present relationships too. Absolutely, and that understanding kind of makes sense of the second part of verse four, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And David says that because when God judges sin, He knows what He's talking about. He's qualified to do so because he was offended by it. You know, so when God judges our sin, it's not just that he is the arbiter between two different parties. He's the offended party. And so he's justified in his words and blameless in his judgment when he, he passes that down. And you know, I mentioned earlier, David, you know, sin is the reality in which he was brought forth. He says in verse five, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin, did my mother conceive me? Now, is that David insulting his mother? 
well, n- no, <laughs> no. <laughs> let's go with no on that one. I, I, I don't no. want to ascribe that to David. It's yeah, really obviously his his recognition, as I was talking about earlier, of this deep within bent to sin. Yep. Yeah. Sinful I nature. mean, it. Yeah, he's not saying my mother did something wrong and conceiving me, and she was sinful and doing so. No, he's just saying that as I was even conceived and brought forth into this world, it's it, it's a yes. sin. He knows he's brought into a fallen world. And he doesn't use that as an excuse. Ah, everybody does it. No, he knows that I was brought forth in this. I have been a sinner since my birth, even conception. You know, it's very important to understand when Adam and Eve sinned and brought, you know, fallenness into the world, we are born into that. As we come into being, we are born into a state of fallenness. We're born into a fallen race of people, and that is humanity. And and David understands this. And Daniel, why does he say in verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Yeah, I looked at that pretty carefully. The, The inner, well, it says here in the new king james version that i'm using it says you desire truth in the inward parts mm-hmm. that essentially means the covered over part of man so he's talking about the, the immaterial part of man as i take it uh for example you know false prophets in ezekiel were said to have covered up god's truth and politicians were said to cover up you know wickedness also in ezekiel so it's a it's an inner thing and and we we certainly need to be able to to say wait it's kind of like first john 1 9 when we confess our sins confession means the idea of speaking the same thing as god so when god says it's wrong we have to go that's right and so i think this verse is saying look you you can't play games you may think you can hide things away from others but Truth needs to start from the inside. Wisdom needs to come from the inside, as we know from that age-old adage that I even had one of my boys quote back at me the other day, where it says, you know, that uh, you have to be a man of integrity when no one's looking. That's the real definition. So that's what it's speaking about here, that this there's got to be this commitment to uh, truth and the conviction that not just outward uh, not just outward compliance to God's law is what matters. It's the inner compliance, as as we see in a lot of passages throughout the Psalms, including even hinted at here at the end of the Psalm. Hmm. Yeah, and I should have mentioned from the outset, I'm just kind of reading from the ESV as I have it before me. You can follow along in any you know faithful translation you have. Um, so those verse, first six verses that we've covered kind of sets the setting of, of David realizing the condition that he's in the situation that he's in the condition that he has he has sinned thoroughly before god in this now in verse seven he kind of switches focus a little bit to kind of the solution um we've already said that there was no recourse under the law that he could take to to buy his way out of this sin so why does he say purge me with hyssop in verse seven and i shall be clean wash me and i shall be whiter than snow well you can see a connection to hyssop and ritual cleansing all throughout this psalm Mm -hmm. you know for example if you if you go back earlier to the word 
wash, which is for me the opening word of verse two, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. That's a word that doesn't mean wash my body, but it means to wash my clothes, like the occupation mm-hmm. of a fuller, for example. And this is the kind of language that we see on the Day of Atonement when the high priest was to, before he stepped inside the Holy of Holies, he was to change clothes. He was to wash his clothes. It's a common theme in, in the Bible to wash yourself and and to change your clothes in addition to that. And so I think that's the word here is it's a change of clothes. And then you connect this word to its its relationship to uh, the usage of hyssop, for example, in, in the law. And we see hyssop being used to cleanse, among other things, lepers. And you can go back to some of the some of the Old Testament laws, like, for example, Leviticus 14, and it speaks about cleansing a leper and having him change his clothes, and they they would cleanse him with a hyssop branch. And so I really think there's a connection here. David is is almost saying he's he's like a leper, and he's an outcast, and he, he wants to come back to inside the city as lepers were abandoned outside of the city. So then when we get to this this verse in verse 7, when he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean, I, I really think the image here is of him sort of suffering from the the dreaded banishment almost of, of being a leper. But, you know, hyssop was a, a popular, well, it's mentioned several passages in the Bible. It's, you know, it's mentioned when the Israelites applied blood to their homes during the Passover in Egypt. Uh, we we see that priests dipped hyssop in water mixed with the sacrificial ashes of the red heifer. We can see that in the Old Testament. And then, of course, the sprinkling of um, lepers and their homes with hyssop as a cleansing ritual. And then, of course, it shows up here, and it even shows up at Golgotha, where they lifted up the sponge of sour wine to Jesus using a hyssop branch. So this hyssop reference is a, just a, a powerful reminder of the necessary cleansing that David and the nation needed to be in right mm. relationship with God. There's a lot we could say about that beautiful image. Yeah, there really is. And as a priest would take a hyssop branch and sprinkle something that needed to be cleansed, a person or even an object. And, um, you know, mm. I think he's talking to God here and he knows that a priest cannot cleanse him for what he's done under the law. He can't be cleansed, but in some way, I think he's talking to God and saying, you know, but if you metaphorically mm. sprinkle the hyssop branch on me, yes. God, if you are the one that that were to do this, then I would be clean. I think this is David recognizing under the law, I can't, I, there's no priest that can cleanse me from this, no sacrifice I can bring, but God, it can come from you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, I love verse eight, Daniel. This is, it's a truth that I have carried with me for years and has brought me great comfort, which might sound strange. (laughs) Um, But he says in verse eight, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. That is so beautiful. Recently, I was reading through Lamentations again, and Jeremiah threw out out lamentations is just 
he's keeping it real, so to speak. And he is just basically pouring his heart out to the Lord. And you've brought us through all this pain and suffering. You've brought all this judgment upon us. You've broken our bones. You have destroyed so much. And he's right in saying that God was the one that was bringing recompense upon Israel for their wicked ways. And David understands, God, you, you punish sin. And oftentimes, Daniel, it's so important. We have to realize that a loving father disciplines his children. And I think David knows that God broke his bones. And, you know, I've told you this before and some people in my life, the time that I felt God's love most closely is when he destroyed me, is, is when he mm. is when he was breaking me down as a result of my own pride. And I thank him so much for that. And not every time we're experiencing a hardship. Is it because God is visiting vengeance upon us? You know, those are the disciples that asked Jesus, was this man born blind because of his sin or his parents? Jesus said, no, it's not the result of sin. It was an occasion for God's glory. But there are often times that we might be suffering the consequence of our poor decisions. And God does visit pain upon us in order to stretch us and to grow us. And that's why James and James 1 says, consider it all joy when we receive many trials and temptations, because through that becomes long-suffering and patience, and through that becomes perfection or completion. And so David realizes, yes, I I am suffering because of, of, of what I've done. David knew it was his fault, but he knew that pain was coming upon him at the hand of the Lord, but that's a very good thing. And I know that's a that's a hard concept for a lot of people to kind of wrap their minds and hearts around, isn't it? Well, we do use the expression. We say at times, you know, the Lord had to break me. Well, mm-hmm. this kind of brings it down to a pretty powerful image that the bones are broken metaphorically here. Yeah. But yeah, it captures that idea powerfully. Yep. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. I mean, that is what David wants, obviously. He wants joy and gladness, and he wants to get through the pain, of course. But he realizes that the consequence from the sin, if you were to keep reading in 2 Samuel 12 and beyond of what happens there, he knows that that is from the Lord. And of course, he wants restoration from the Lord. And in verse 9, he says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Another way of basically asking for this forgiveness from the sin that he that he committed. Verse 10 is such a comforting verse to so many people. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Daniel, what do you think of that verse? You know, it's the only verse in the Bible that I know sign language to. Wow. <laughs> when I was in seminary, we had to do a little skit in chapel one day, and one of the team members said, well, we can do some sign language. I know sign language. So I can actually do the little sign language of creating me a clean heart. That's that's the only sign language I know. Ah. I think I, I think I know Jesus, too. You point to the your hands, you know. Oh, ah, yes. But other than that, but it, it it's 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 remarkable. You know, the the idea here of you know being clean is this word that's often used to sort of parallel purity like we would say something is pure gold that that would be the kind of usage of this hebrew word so created me like a a, a 
pure gold heart, a pure, uh, with no impurities heart. I, I can't do it myself, but you can build that back in me, build back integrity in, in me, build back a a resoluteness that that I don't have, as he says in the second half of the verse, a new steadfast spirit within me. I, I want to be this man of integrity, but clearly I, I can't do it without you. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Verse 11, he says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. How much of a rabbit trail do we want to go down here? Daniel? <laughs> well, we could, we could, we could wander down that road for a long ways, but we'll probably just have to resist the urge. Yeah. Let's resist the urge. And because there's a lot I'd love to say and to get into, you know, some pneumatology and theology of the Holy Spirit, I'll just quick answer between you and me and whoever's listening. I do think this is the theocratic anointing of the Holy Spirit. I know that there are many great theologians that take uh, different good views on this. Um, but I think specifically he's referring to the theocratic anointing of the Holy Spirit. You can Google that one. Um, but he, he continues in verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This is kind of more what David wants, the solution to the sin that he committed. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. David, I'm sure, you know, he create a clean heart in me, renew a right spirit, re- restore to me the joy. I think he he feels probably far away from God, you know? And if if you have a salvific, a saving relationship with God, that can never go away. I mean, God will never take away your salvation. However, through our sin, we certainly can feel far from him. We, we can certainly fracture the relationship that we have with God. And if we wanted to talk more about the hyssop and law and sacrifice and stuff, we could talk about a vertical relationship that you have with the Lord, a, a horizontal relationship that David had with his covenant people of Israel. Um, but his, his relationship with God was certainly fractured, damaged, but not destroyed. And he wants the joy of a close walk with the Lord back. Let me mention this too, Adam, for those who may have a King James or a new King James. Most of the versions read exactly like you just said, uphold me uh, or give me a, a willing spirit. There is no capitalization in the Hebrew, so we don't know whether that's little s or big s spirit. And uh, in many cases in your Bibles, you'll see where there are words that are in italics. That means that they aren't really in the Hebrew. Your editors have just added that. So the New King James Version actually says, and uphold me with your generous spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit. But it's a, a little bit outside the, the general translation of this passage. Most people think it's speaking about David asking God to give him a willing heart to obey. But I didn't want our listeners to be confused if they were seeing that. Because, again, there's no capitalization and some of the words had to be supplied. It, it's hard to know exactly. Both translations are possible for sure, but probably the most common one is, is David being or David requesting rather that the Lord strengthen him or uphold him and give him this desire, this willingness, this mm-hmm. this oh, desire to obey him. Yeah. Uh, in, in his deep down spirit, in contrast to his sinful nature up in verse five, give me a give me a willing spirit. Yeah, I think that's a really good, helpful explanation. Uh, the next few verses of the psalm, I think, are very interesting. Um, 
and and think in think in your mind, listeners, of of what David is doing here. So, in the first few verses, he talked about the sin that he had committed, the condition in which he was in. The next several verses, Lord, here's what I want. I want a right relationship with you again. I want forgiveness. And now David's going to talk about well, what? Well, listen to this. <laughs> See what you think first. Okay, verses thirteen through fifteen. I'll read. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. So David, in each of these verses, says something about, you know, do this for me, and then I will do this. So, is this David wheeling and dealing and negotiating with God? Is this David basically saying, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours? What do you think, Daniel? I think so many times in the Psalms, you see the psalmist, very typically David, sort of writing in a way that he already is in the future in his mind. So it's like he he sees this as, Lord, I, I'm coming to you for cleansing and i just i just want to say that when it comes and i and i am falling upon your mercy but i i believe it will this is what i'm going to do this is yeah. this is me afterwards i don't think it's him saying well you you know I'll, you do this and i'll do that this is basically him just placing himself in the future and saying this is my response to what i know you've you've done or you're going to do this is this is just me and my excitement and my desire to consecrate my life by this behavior. That's how I look at it. Oh, absolutely. I, I fully agree. This isn't David saying, let's make a deal. But but this really is kind of illustrative of how our own Christian experience should be. Um, this is David saying, God, if, if you do this for me, which, yeah, he's casting himself in the future. He knows God. He's confident God will forgive him, I think. And so he's saying, if if you do this, if you restore the joy of my salvation, if you open my lips, all these things, here's what will flow out of me. Here, here's what I can't help but to do. I'm going to teach people your ways, and sinners will return to you. You deliver me from blood guiltness, God, if you forgive me, I can't help but to sing aloud of your righteousness. David knows that he's going to testify to the great thing that God has done for him, forgiven him, that he can't help but just to go and share the good news with people. How do we respond to the great news that Christ has died for me? You know, we in the church today, we have this wonderful gift of salvation that God has supplied on the cross. What do we do? What do we say about it? Do, do we share that joy with other people, confident that sinners will return to God? I think that if we have the joy of Christ within us, truly thankful for what he's done for us, how can we not react like David and teach transgressors his ways and sing aloud of his righteousness and declare his praise? Yeah, a lot like we just did earlier. You know, we were we were excited about the Cowboys win and we're talking about it. It's like, look what happened. I, I, I've got to tell you, I'm just I'm just bubbling up with excitement. And so I think it's, it's this again, he he's just bubbling up and it's going to come out. And if you're going to be around him, you're just going to hear it. Yeah. I mean, I just think this is David just expressing the great joy that, that is going to flow out of him. So 
Yeah. I just, I just love those verses. I know I've said that I love this verse because I love this Psalm so much, but this really, I think is a great picture. And, you know, I can't believe I haven't said this yet, but when, when I teach Psalm 51 or, or preach through it, which I've done several times, I like to tongue in cheek, call it my new Testament Psalm, because I think there's a common mistake that a lot of people make and, and they almost kind of think of the old Testament as harsh judging God. But then in the New Testament, all of a sudden he finds a way to forgive people and, you know, be kind and stuff. For one, I think they're forgetting a lot of the uh, the rightly stern judgment that Jesus Christ himself <laughs> will, will dispense, um, but also the merciful loving kindness that God has always shown from cover to cover in the Bible. God is the same. He does not change. He is just and will rightly visit judgment upon sin. He is also loving and merciful and 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 freely gracious and ready to forgive from cover to cover of the Bible. So I like to, in, in kind of a half joke, say, well, Psalm 51 is my New Testament psalm to show people, look, maybe the first place I go to in Scripture when I want to show somebody the mercy and grace of God is an Old Testament passage, Psalm 51. And and this is just, oh, this is just wonderful. And I think this is just a wonderful picture into who God is, as you find all throughout the scriptures, of course. Um, but I say all that because I think of almost David as a church member. Christ has saved me, and what am I going to do about it? I'm, I'm just going to tell people about it. Um, now, we've talked about how there's no recourse under the law that David could give, no sacrifice that he could make to pay for his sin. He says this in verse 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You know, he's the king. He could afford it. (laughs) You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Now, is it a bit funny to you that as he's talking to God, the one who instituted the, the sacrificial system in the first place, you will not delight in sacrifice? Doesn't want, didn't God want the people to bring sacrifices? Yeah, for sure. I I think obviously what we see here is sort of a, a contrast that, you know, we, you don't want just outward compliance of the law as we saw back even earlier in verse six, you know, you want, you want that inward desire that shows itself in yeah in the outward compliance or as, or else we could say it this way. We could say, you know, David is suggesting that my broken heart of praise pleases you more Hmm. than burnt offerings. Yeah. Even though God instituted the sacrificial system and yes, to the letter, he wanted his people to bring the sacrifices. There's a few times throughout the old Testament through the prophets. He basically tells them, I don't want it. Right. I don't want keep your sacrifice and Malachi shut the doors. Right. You know, shut the whole operation down because if you aren't bringing those sacrifices to me in, in true repentance and contrition, I don't want them. God had always been interested in the spirit of the law, which is, which is the rub between Jesus and the Pharisees and scribes oftentimes is yet they did a great job following the letter of the law, but so oftentimes they followed the law without the right heart condition. It's like they were following the law of God, but not the God of the law in some way. And David realizes this. You will not delight in just going through the motions of that sacrificial system, or I would do that. 
in verse 17, he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. And the last part of verse 17 should drive us to our knees in such gratefulness to God, because he says, oh God, you will not despise. The sacrifice that comes from a broken spirit and a contrite heart, that is a sacrifice that God will never reject, never turn away. And that is so comforting to me it, it, and should be to every believer. Our broken spirit and our contrite heart, God will never look at that and say, nah, I don't want it. You know, maybe that maybe the burnt animals that people were going through the motions, he could say, I just, I don't want that. But a broken spirit and a contrite heart, oh man, God will never look at that and say, I don't want it. Yeah, it's a bit sobering too, because it's a reminder that when we're standing in church and we're singing, wait, what are we doing? Are we just mm, yeah. singing the words? Or if I'm sitting there listening to a message, am I really just there? Or am I really desiring to allow that word to transform my heart? And if we're not really there for the right reason, that is despair on some level i mean mm. to, to borrow that word it's not it's not really pleasing to the lord and that's why you can see some examples in the churches in revelation for example in chapters two and three of revelation you see examples of churches where it said well you know you you're uh, you've lost your first love for example and other expressions yeah. because you've just you've you've become a church it just goes through the motions you're just pretending and and that's what we come back again to your, your question earlier about the meaning of truth in the inward parts and the wisdom in the hidden part. You know, we, we want there to be a, a recognition that there's there's nothing hidden. It must come from our spirit to honor the Lord above all. Yeah. I mean, even prayer and reading the Bible. Am I doing yeah. it just to check a box mm-hmm. or am I reading the Bible to encounter the Lord and to learn from him? Am I, am I praying to actually be in true communion with God? You know, even good things can be, can be not good. <laughs> yeah. And we need to come to him with that attitude. I got to tell you a funny story. Years ago, I was, I was down in the highlands of Peru at about 10,000 feet and was speaking at a pastor's conference with my good friend, Mike Riggs. And we had pastors there and we had pastor's wives there and a lot of key leaders in the church. And so I'm teaching them how to study the Bible. My first lesson is on you need to pray before you study. And they're like, yeah. And I, I'm like that too. But, you know, of course, it's my job to study the Bible. So sometimes even I forget. I just come in and like I get the work and I don't really stop and go, Lord, I, I, I need to make this about you and not about me. And so I need to pray. So I'm at this conference and I'm, I'm doing this lesson on praying before you study. And then I broke them up into groups and I had two groups of men and one group of women. And I wanted them to answer some questions or study something. I forget what it was, but they're in the three different groups. And I said, okay, everybody break up into your groups and I'll get back with you in about 15 minutes. You can report on what you discovered. And I look around the room and one group prayed before they studied and the other two just jumped right in. Can you guess which group stopped and prayed? <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and guess it was the ladies. Yeah, it was the ladies. You know, it's like, <laughs> Why, you know, we, as men, I think we just sort of, we're going to conquer and we forget we're not the conquerors we think we are. We're really right. just men and we, mm. we need the Lord. Amen. Now, the last two verses of this psalm, 
lead a lot of people to think that it was added later. They think that it just doesn't make sense with the rest of it. I think it makes beautiful sense. And I think it's just a wonderful way for David to end this psalm. Earlier, you mentioned, I think, if I remember right, something about the people corporately, you know, should have had their hearts bent to the Lord. I'm totally paraphrasing you. But it made me think of these verses. This is David ending Mm -hmm. this psalm, which is so personal. Right. And of how, God, you don't want just the burnt offerings and, and stuff like that. But here's how he ends this psalm. In verses 18 and 19, do good to Zion in your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Now, is this David contradicting what he just said? Not at all. This, I think, is the king saying, I've been driven to my knees in realization of my sin and finding forgiveness from the Lord. And I'm going to just shout at the top of my lungs how great he is. I think this is the king saying now only if the rest of the country also would come to this point. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. You know, bless us as a people. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Give us safety and security. And I think he's saying, God if everybody else realized what I have realized, you would delight in right sacrifices. You would delight in the whole sacrificial system being done. And the temple wasn't here in David's day yet. Solomon built it, but they had the tabernacle. They had the altar and sacrificial system. And David is saying you would take pleasure in that if people were to have the same repentant heart condition that I have. Yeah, absolutely. I think the key phrase there is a sacrifice or sacrifices of righteousness. He's saying, mm-hmm. we, we got to be righteous before you. But when we are, you're going to say, ah, come to the altar. Yeah, Come to the altar and bring your gifts to the altar. This idea, too, of building up the walls. We know that in the in, in the law, the I think the worst possible judgment that the law had said could come upon them was if invading armies came in and took them away. And that would eventually happen as we know. But I think he's saying, we want to be right with you because we know that as a part of the law, and it's not the same case for us today as Christians, but as part of the law, the deal was you, you walk with me and I'll keep you safe in your land. I'll keep you safe behind these walls. I'll protect you and guard you and keep you close. But if you disobey, you know, obviously you, you can be destroyed and you will be destroyed and taken to captivity. But so I think that's what he's saying, build up the walls of Jerusalem, but that's going to happen as they live a righteous life. God's going to respond by protecting them and caring for them. And they're going to walk with him righteously. And then God's going to be pleased with their sacrifices. Mm, Amen. Now, we just read all 19 verses of Psalm 51, and we talked through them, and there's even more that we could have said beyond what we have. But, Daniel, any uh, any concluding thoughts on Psalm 51? Well, it's just a, it's a beautiful plea for purity. It's, and it's a, it is a plea. It is a, a statement of humility that I can't do this apart from you. I just tried something on my own when others weren't looking and that broke me. 
and you're but you're going to have to rebuild me and this sin with Bathsheba can only be covered by you. I think everybody can relate to this psalm in different ways. It may not be the sin of adultery or murder, but we all kind of go, yeah, that's me. I, I see myself in that. And I, at times, you know, I, I meet with people and they're struggling and they need help. And I just simply say you need to really humble yourself because there's pride here. And I, I can't make you do that. You're, you're going to have to fall upon the Lord and before him and to say those words that nobody else can say for you, which is have mercy on me. Oh God. Mm. And dear listener, never forget this Psalm 51 is a great reflection of what made David a man after God's own heart. All right, Daniel, what's the answer to our trivia question? Well, it's time to look at it again, isn't it? So um, I said earlier, we don't know exactly how many children Adam and Eve had, but here's my question. How many of their children does the Bible specifically mention, whether the children are named or not? Is the answer two, three, four, five, six, or seven? And Adam, you're always such a good sport, and you're willing to just, before everybody listening in, make an attempt at it and you're braver than I am. But what do you think is the answer? All right. I'm going to go with both three and five and I'll explain it here. I think they're okay. Go ahead and explain three because there's three individual names that I'm remembering and five because there's five categories of people. <laughs> um, Cain, Abel and Seth are named okay. yes. and then other sons and other daughters. So the five, okay. five categories are, Cain, Abel, Seth, other sons, other daughters. That's what I'm going to go with. Well, well, you you said three or five, but really you're saying seven. Oh, Adam and Eve. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, like you said, Adam. Excuse me. I'm sorry. You said you're saying Cain, Abel, and Seth, right? Yeah. And then you said other sons. That's five. And other daughters. That's two more. That's seven. That's really the right answer. Oh, well, there you go. It, yeah. <laughs> it mentions the three named children. Oh, and then okay. it says, <laughs> see, and it says in Genesis 5, 4, after Adam begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years and he begot sons and daughters. Ah, nice. So the three named boys, at least two unnamed boys and two unnamed girls. Now, who knows? They may have even had more than that. And the verse seems to imply that they did, but we can for sure say that Adam and Eve had at least seven children. So although you said the numbers three and five, when I added up your answer, it was really seven. And that's what I would say is the correct answer. All right. We'll take it for a win. Okay. Well done. Well, before I turn things back over to you, Adam, let me remind our listeners, that you and I are available to visit their churches, their schools, their home Bible study groups, retreats, camps, and more to teach seminars on various topics, including Bible geography, the places where Jesus walked, great archaeological finds, the temples of God, beginning Hebrew, and so many more. We don't charge any set fees, but only ask that you provide an honorarium for the speaker and cover any necessary travel and lodging expenses. Adam's in Texas, and I'm in Alabama, so we may not always um, be uh, close ourselves, but we're probably not very far from wherever you are. So just reach out to us at Shalom Y'all Ministries. No apostrophe, no spaces. Shalom, S-H-A-L-O-M-Y-A-L-L Ministries. Shalom Y'all Ministries at gmail.com to schedule either Adam or myself. 
Just last week, I spoke to a wonderful group of seniors at Center Grove Baptist Church in Colon, Alabama, and I'm preparing to launch a fall Sunday night series at a church in Hansville, Alabama. We'd counted a privilege. I know I can speak for you, Adam, saying we'd counted a privilege to present one of our studies or seminars to your group as well. So let me turn it back to you now, Adam. Well, we sure hope that you've enjoyed this week's walk through Psalm 51. Like David, may we be aware of our sin and be ready to seek the Lord's forgiveness. He is always there to meet us with grace and mercy, no matter how far we have strayed. Shalom, y'all. Shalom, y'all.